This is the Social Distance Podcast and today I'm speaking with writer and friend of mine, Chris Dolan from Glasgow. Chris is a writer of TV shows, plays for stage and radio. He's a poet, uh, he's a novelist and he writes in pretty much every genre. Just to give you an update, we're speaking on May the 28th, 2020 and as of today the UK has recorded 267,240 cases of COVID-19 and an amazing, to me anyway, 37,460 deaths. When you see it written down like that, it's kind of astonishing. Chris, thanks for taking the time to chat. Um, I, I was looking at the, you know, when you read the reports day after day, right? And and you just sort of take stuff in and you digest it and some bits stick and some bits don't. But when I was writing down before I, uh, I spoke to you that, um, so the UK has had 267,240 confirmed cases of COVID-19, 37,460 deaths so far as of today. And Scotland's had 2,304 deaths. That just blows my mind. Th- those numbers, it's incredible. I mean, I know that's sort of stating the obvious, but it needs to be stated. Like, it's it's so tempting to kind of normalise this and think, oh, well, it's an unprecedented situation and nobody really could have seen this coming and, and so on. But fuck me, what a disaster. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's just more important. We, we, we kind of get used to it. You're right. I mean, it does get normalized. Uh, and every now and then you just kind of think again. And think, God, this is unbelievable. So we're way the highest uh, outside of the United States and Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, which are much bigger countries. I think proportionally, we're, we're every bit as high as they are. So we're mm-hmm. one of the worst performing countries in the entire world. Um, it's a great, it's a great honor roll, to, honor roll to belong to, isn't it? Trump, isn't it? Trump's it? USA and Bolsonaro's Brazil. And I have to say that actually, you know, I would like to say that there was a, a, you know, a bigger difference between UK as a whole and Scotland having, you know, people talking about this very different approach in Scotland and Sturgeon and uh, the Scottish government taking a slightly different approach. But it's not that different. And to be perfectly honest, uh, the figures are you know, just where they should be, roughly, proportionally, we're about 10%, which is what we are as a population. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we don't have an awful lot really to be to be uh, uh, happy about in Scotland either. And in fact, I think our, our, our uh, care home deaths are, if anything, higher than in England. Um, so yeah, that, that that's also, you know, actually, you know, you, it's kind of, for someone like me, and, you know, it's kind of obvious for, <laughs> for you and I, Know each other well that uh, you know I have so politely saying it very little time for the Tory government in London. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to be able to say that a kind of more social democratic approach in Scotland would have produced better results, but it, but it hasn't. And in fact, I don't think the approach has been that much different. Um, if there is any difference at all, it's kind of it's come late. Um, it's only really since uh, Johnson started to kind of. Um, Ease a lockdown that you know Scotland has taken a slightly different tack, and so is Wales and Northern Ireland. Yeah, it's a bit too late, you know. Um, the, 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 the horse has bolted, you know, three thousand times. It's an interesting. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't say sleight of hand by the Scottish government, but if that's the case, they they have sort of managed the message successfully. I think from a 
vantage point of Australia looking at it, thinking that the presentation has been a lot better, seemed a lot more decisive and a lot more clinical and a lot more clear. But as you say, the, the numbers necess- don't necessarily bear that out. Right. I find it fascinating, actually, with a bit of conversation recently with some uh, English and English-based friends, uh, English-based friends who said, you know, we, we, even people who are very, very anti-independence uh, and uh, who are you know, kind of central, central-left, saying that we, we'd love to have Nicola down here. She's by far the best. And it's quite interesting. You know, and well, look at the numbers. And actually, there's not an awful lot of difference. But having said that, that, that total difference is kind of important. This week of all weeks, um, after... Boris Johnson yesterday in the committee in Parliament. Um, somebody said some were blundering like a schoolboy, and particularly after Donnelly Cummings. Um, but you know the, the tone at least has been. You feel less of a, a distance, a gap uh, between the leaders of your country and and us, the people of the street, than I think we're feeling as the UK right. government just seems to be. You know. Uh, a law unto itself. The Cummings case is just extraordinary. I mean, I think so the Cummings, it. yeah, the, and the Cummings case bears a little explaining. He is Boris Johnson's sort of chief policy advisor in in Number Ten Dining Street, and so again for those who don't know the situation here, and um, so yeah, he goes up to Durham um, because he says he uh, his wife originally has, has got symptoms. He's got he's got uh, childcare problems. Uh, he's from the northeast, so he drives um, two hundred fifty odd miles, whatever it is, up to Durham. All of which is, you know, I mean, the, 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 you keep saying this, there was always an exceptional case for, for children at risk, but actually that had to do with the abuse of homes. That had to do, that was a, a kind of a, a regulation or a, a, an exception that was brought in for the women and children living with abuse of their husbands. Um, so he's using, you know, I mean, quite, quite in such a tawdry way, he's using this to go up, but you can almost get away with that. But then when he's up there, he decides, after two weeks up there, uh, because they have to isolate for his wife, so and then he then gets uh, gets uh, um, uh, symptoms. So they reckon that the best way to find out if he's okay to drive, because he said that his eyesight went a bit. Which is, sorry, um, um, sorry, turn that off. Uh, he said his eyesight went a bit, which which Boris Johnson agreed with, and um, said that happened to him as well. But I've never heard it anywhere else. But anyway. In order to test his eyesight, he then goes on a day trip to a beauty spot, taking his wife and son with, with him. And if you're going to test your eyesight and see if you can drive or not, are you going to take your, your toddler child in a car with you for 50 miles? I mean, it's, it's, the, even the excuses are truly, truly terrible. Um, it's just a thought, surely you can, you can do better than that. But the, the one thing I think is really amazing that's not been spoken about nearly enough is he finally uh, uh, does a bit of a public, um, uh, he appears from the public, and there's two things about this on television. First of all, it's in the Rose Garden, which is uh, Downing Street. Uh, that is kind of saying, I'm the Prime Minister. Now, what the hell is a, a civil servant doing, presenting by himself as if he's you know, the power uh, in, in the Rose Garden? Um, and amazing that Boris Johnson allowed him to do that, because he, so he's come across as, I am speaking from the seat of power. And the reason really thing that gets me is, and it tells you so much about this man and this government, is he turns up half an hour late. I find that just gobsmacking. The whole nation is waiting to find out. We're in the middle of the biggest crisis in living memory and beyond. There's this huge issue, and this guy comes in, shuffles in, half an hour late. The cameras are there. 
All the stations are there, the international press there, everybody's there, and he shuffles in half an hour late and doesn't even excuse. He doesn't even say, sorry, the traffic was bad. He doesn't even say, sorry, I had childcare problems at all. Nothing. He doesn't care that you've all been late for 20 minutes. Um, so he clearly holds us all in complete disdain, including the government that he's supposed to represent or advising rather. Yeah, so, but what's what, what's interesting, in a way, what's interesting is like, the, you know, they're kind of shameless in the same way that uh, the same way that Trump is. You know, they 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 don't really give a shit. You know, so what? So what? I did it. So what? What are you going to do about it? You know, they're kind of like <laughs> it's astonishing, and it it gives me such an ache in my heart when I think of people who denied themselves or were denied the opportunity to, you know, tend to their dying loved ones. Thirty-seven thousand people, right? who probably died on their own, a good percentage of them who weren't able to have their loved ones around, weren't able to have funerals. And this guy's scooting about like like he's on a a royal parade or something, like a, a jaunt. You know what I mean? It's just fucking... You talk about... Talk about um, Scottish dialect words that were invented. I'm so scunnered with that. It's disgusting. It's just... I mean, what a scunner. It is. It is. I told Latchard to as well. You know, he goes up there and up there. And he goes, five feet comes from It's not just a farm. His parents have some massive estate. There's houses in it. There's a whole house he can stay in. <laughs> um, so there's all of that. There's all that kind of uh, whole house is just totally empty, just waiting for him to go back to it. Uh, um, but, it, but it is that disdain that uh, he really does shrug off. He doesn't, he doesn't care at all. But all those people, those people who died, as you know, I mentioned before that my, my son's in the A&E in, in Manchester. Uh, we've got other friends who are doctors at the front line as well. And, and what they say is, you know, what was heartbreaking is, is not just the deaths themselves, but the poor families who don't get to be with their mum, their dad, as they're dying. They don't get to go to the funeral. You know, they don't get to do anything. And and that's what a lot of doctors say. That's the really most difficult thing to, to deal with. Uh, and this guy... Clearly, not only doesn't give a shit, but actually wants you to know that he doesn't give a shit. You know? His entire turning up half an hour late, his entire offhand uh, presentation, uh, Johnson not, not caring particularly to really do his homework and come up with better reasons why he's going to let this guy off the hook, they're all saying, you know what, we don't give a shit. And that is, and that, and that's, I think that's what was not happening in Scotland. Yeah. And the number just as bad, and the policies may not have been uh, any better, really, in the end of the day. Um, but at least it does seem to be, and I think we all generally think that most of the people in the Scottish government actually do care and actually are obeying the rules. So, you know, um, and our chief medical school, you know, and she was, she had to go because she did something much less bad. She only went 30, 40 miles into Fife. Um, and she didn't have quite a good excuse in Italy. Uh, but I'm not sure we all buy on the uh, excuse. But, you know, they did the right thing there. So people feel that the Scottish government's, you know, kind of on their side, whereas the British government just seems to not care. You know, you, you mentioned, I think, in our first conversation that, that you'd been getting a lot of writing done over the course of uh, the periods when you've been in isolation. Um, what have you been working on? Because even that Dominic Cummings story just seems tailor-made for a... A dramatic treatment, 
right? And it will happen, there's no doubt. It will. Somebody somewhere will do that. I've, I've never seen it, actually, Dominic. There, there was a, uh, uh, a dramatization of the Brexit debate. Uh, was a, a Cumberbatch who was Cummings, uh, which I'm, I've never seen. It's my job to watch television, and I haven't seen that one. I've never been. I couldn't bring myself to watch it. That's exactly as me. I just couldn't. I, I just I kind of knew it was going to soft soap them, and apparently did. Uh, but I can't, I can't watch it. I can't afford to break another TV set. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's, I, don't, I didn't just miss it. I just couldn't. I couldn't watch it. And this will definitely happen again. Um, Although I do find it interesting you ask about what I'm writing. It's, it's kind of a bit of a debate amongst a lot of writers is, what do you do about this? Do, you know, do we all write about it? In which case, for the next 10 years, there'll be, there'll be no dramas, no books, uh, apart from uh, coronavirus. And everything will be, will be doing exactly the same thing. Um, equally, you, know, you can't ignore it. <laughs> it's, it's the biggest event in, in all our lives. Um, and it's had horrific consequences. So yeah, how do, how do you work with it? Um, and I'm, I'm, that's going to be very, very interesting to see. Uh, right now, it's interesting. There's just lots of stuff online. I mean, what you're doing, though, you know, this kind of stuff. Uh, there's lots of really interesting podcasts. There's lots of people just doing diaries. Lots of writers doing diaries, and all that's quite interesting. I've been working on one with David Heyman, which is taking ages to go off the ground for a number of reasons, but that might actually be a good thing. Um, so yeah, no, it's interesting what writers do, but whether whether you know. Whether, it's going to be, you know, nothing but coronavirus wall to wall for the next ten years. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I suspect that the, the, you know, there's the there's the daily newspaper articles of you know um, people's reflections on it, and then I, I suppose over time things get winnowed out, and people will stop paying attention in the same way. And um, Somebody told me something interesting recently, I don't know who it was, my son is looking into what happened in 1918, uh, 1919, um, and he was saying that, uh, somebody was telling me, that uh, somewhere, I'm, I'm making this up, but somewhere in 1919, or 1919, you know, people were getting arrested if they didn't have masks in the streets in San Francisco and places, uh, it was kind of the same kind of atmosphere around just now. Um, um, People terrified, um, you know, the economy collapsing, and people either refusing or being too frightened to go back to work, all of that. But once the virus kind of died away by, by 2020, within months, everybody's right back to normal. Everybody, all the masks are gone, everybody's back to work, everybody's in crowded buses, everybody's meeting in cafes and bars and everything else. I do think human beings tend to do that. You know, I think, you know, it might take six months, it might take six years. But, you know, when this thing finally does kind of let go of us, you know, I, I do honestly suspect within a month or two of that, back to normal. Uh, people just will back in the buses and everything. I definitely have a, I definitely have a sense of that here in Australia, where uh, things are things are easing up by the week, and you know, people aren't yet congregating in pubs or anything like that. But you know, the the beaches are filling up again, and um, you know, there's people in the street, and there's there's a lot more people around and there's a lot more traffic and the economy is starting to um, occupy people's minds um, a lot more than the virus itself. Um, it was an interesting choice of language. The Prime Minister, who's, who's a, not an admirable man, <laughs> um, made a statement the other day saying that um, it was important that uh, the country put its 
its mind to this task of getting the economy out of ICU, which I thought was a really interesting telling phrase to to conflate the the actual um, language of um, medical emergency with um, and people's lives with the the economic engine that, that has been that has been idling for the last few months and um, I, you know you can read too much into these things but at the same time the language does tell you something about what's on what's on a <laughs> on a politician's mind and I find it kind of upsetting and obnoxious um, but you you'd you'd not be surprised to know that his that his solutions are are all about um, slashing the dreaded red tape and deregulation and <laughs> you know um, increasing the um, increasing the spending on um, infrastructure for fossil fuel production fracking all that sort of stuff so so um, yeah good good stuff coming down the pike <laughs> we're now back looking at uh, maybe uh, um, more kind of uh, um, rhetoric about uh, um, we're leaving Europe no matter what, just doesn't matter, nothing nothing changes. Uh, Johnson was very, wanted to talk about that yesterday, Donald talked about Donald Cummings and the coronavirus. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to stick to the manifesto commitments, we're out of Europe, even if it's an ODA. So, I mean, that, that whole, it's a whole Trumpian thing, isn't it? It's that the whole Britain first, uh, uh, we don't care what anybody else is doing. Uh, you can see some, British government enraged the, the, the French government by, by saying that we've come from France, we have to be quarantined. Again, a completely non-international approach. And it's been, I think that's probably one of the most disappointing things that we'll all look back on and how incapable we were as a global community to work in any way together. Um, I think we're all going to pay the price for that. We're going to pay it in the rich countries, uh, Australia and here, we're going to pay the price for that. Um, but... Uh, um, I think the, the, the poorer world is really going to be hit in the long term. That's where that's from. You know, the, the failure of international solidarity and being able to work together is going to be a terrible place to be. And the poorer the country, the worse the place will be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to argue with that, you know. Well, you know, I mean, the same here. I mean, all the stuff you're saying in Australia is the same here. It's all, it's all you know, the same old, it's the same old uh, policies going ahead. And it is, it's still, you know, Still, no doubt, you know, the, 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 just just because Boris Johnson said the two nurses were very nice to him, he's in the hospital. You know, he immediately comes out and tries to penalise nurses. Uh, it's one of the first things he does when he gets out. Um, and there's no doubt that the old the old Tory mindset of uh, privatise the NHS, uh, do away with the welfare system, even though we, we, it's been proven to us completely now how much we depend on these incredibly civilised uh, modern ideas and structures. Utterly, yeah. They're, they're still going to go. Yeah, they're still going to go. You know, the tax are there, the tax are there on the BBC, the tax are on all these institutions which have kind of made this bearable and, and some kind of way of fighting against it. But uh, nothing's changed. You know, for, for these guys in the, in the Tory government, nothing's changed. Um, mm. And that's amazing. You know, but then it hasn't affected them because, you know, it hasn't really affected people incredibly well off looking isolated in beautiful big houses with massive gardens um, in, in the countryside away from the, the, the hotspots. Um, so they haven't been affected, so they don't care. Um, I, I was reading a piece by a journalist in Seattle who used the phrase, uh, she used the phrase disaster progressivism, I think it was, which I really liked as a 
counterweight to disaster capitalism, which was essentially that um, the myth that the people who are in power know what they're doing has finally been exposed and now is the time to be courageous enough to, to dream the things that you want to dream and to voice them. And just because you don't have an answer to the question of like, well, how would you ever make that happen? Doesn't mean to say that they're not valid or that you don't have the right to say them and to voice them and to, to and the, you know, speaking about them is a way of enabling them to become a reality in the world that we live in. And, you know, talking about things like universal healthcare, like in the States, in a US context, talking about um, a universal income, um, you know, other uh, kinds of um, approaches to uh, local agriculture and local food production and, you know, just all these sort of progressive ideas that now is the time when, I know I know we've talked about this before, but now is the time when you can say these things and, and you, you have 37,460 deaths as evidence of the fact that the existing model of power doesn't necessarily work. You know what I'm getting at? Exactly. Uh, I do totally. Um, I thought it was a very interesting thing. That, that Something you said there a minute ago, um, Dominic, I think it's kind of key. Something on my mind a lot too is, is if we don't have the specific answers, then the fact is that something like this, it shows that we very seldom as a, as a, as a species have the specific answers. Um, and one of the problems with, uh, I think, quite, particularly the rhetorical type of governments which we have in Australia, Britain, Brazil, uh, UK, and, and, and USA and various places, is this kind of need to constantly, you know, just inject some bleach will be fine, you know, and, you know this, this need to have the answer. And it reminds me because I stole the link for some, I wrote uh, this line by, I think it's Schiller, uh, the German quote, which is, uh, forget about, uh, so it goes something like, forget about the answers. Just live the questions, and and I think well, I think that's right. I think instead of always you know have to say right, I've now got the answer, and, and you, unless you have something very very specific and concrete, that's kind of what's going wrong. Actually, you know, as a species and as, and as individual nations, to step back and just look at everything and actually just look at all the possibilities and begin to kind of you know take baby steps, in new directions. I think it has to be that. You know? I think it has to be. Just be a bit more adventurous and not try and do this kind of you know, rhetorical thing about I have all the answers if you just do this I'll, I'll be fine. I mean, every press conference across the world, I think, I'm also following Spain very closely, and that's interesting too. There is a, there's a socialist government, and Partido Socialista, but not particularly socialist, um, but you know, the current left or centre. Um, but it's exactly the same, you know, and it is all this kind of table thumping, you know. I'm going to fix it. Well, you're not. <laughs> we know you're not going to fix it. But what we can do is think about it. What's What's your read on? Uh, so, you know, we can talk about Brazil or the US or the UK. In In a country like Spain, where there is currently a, a left leaning government, what's your read on on that situation? And it's fascinating, actually, I think. I think I mean, I'm not actually there, but I'm in touch with a lot of people in different parts of Spain and with quite different political viewpoints. And I try and get this catch up most days with the Spanish press online. Um, I mean, I would say that, you know, they've had, they've had next to us at the worst, aren't they? I think it was a little Spain overtook. So, you know, we've got to be careful again that, uh, that you know, that they, they, they've not really done well in terms of numbers. Um, 
uh, and the whole care home thing, you know, it's not to believe four hours, which is another thing that really, really pisses me off. That both the British government and the Scottish government too said we didn't realise the danger in care homes. Yes, you did. It was happening in Spain a month before it started happening. But it, actually, I do. I get the impression that um, people are kind of fairly supportive of Sanchez, the, the prime minister, uh, and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, they, and he's done a reasonably good job. People, even some right leaning people that I know are pretty pissed off with constant bickering from other parties, uh, right-wing parties. Um, it feels as if you should just allow Sanchez to, to go ahead and do what he needs to do. It's interesting that he was, he was always easy to put in a, a coalition with a, with a much more left uh, party, um, Podemos. Uh, and and he's, he's been trying to kind of stop the influence of them as much as possible. But actually less so now that Podemos and the Socialists seem to be working pretty well together. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, now that Spain is coming out, uh, and kind of roughly where you are, maybe a little bit ahead, actually, in Australia, Australia because bars and restaurants are now open. Uh, I mean, they have to be distanced, and you can only go with members of your household and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm really jealous. I'm looking on a daily basis at friends of mine in nice parts of Spain sitting outside having paella. <laughs> Fantastic. Particularly when you think of it just two weeks ago, it seemed unbelievable. So I don't, I don't think we can, I would love to say there's, there's a huge difference between uh, a socialist-leaning government um, and, uh, and the, the more right-wing governments, but in terms of numbers and in terms of actual things happening, the lockdown and easy lockdown, there's not an awful lot of difference really between them. Uh, where there is a difference is where the problem hasn't been so big in Portugal, uh, which is a really interesting uh, and more happily kind of the central government. I wonder. I wonder if it's if it's easier to if you're naturally inclined to be supportive of a left leaning government. If it's if it's a bit easier to give them the benefit of the doubt, basically, you know, you, those things that I was saying earlier about it's an unprecedented situation and nobody can be expected to manage everything are the kinds of reasons that that come very easily to come very easily to me when I'm looking at a a country with a left-leaning government, um, but they're the very same reasons that <laughs> that when it comes to a right-wing government, I show them no mercy. <laughs> so you know, so that's a feeling in me, I guess. You know, it's it's interesting because like when I talk about this as well, like I, I was speaking to someone here in in Australia who's been who's been working on uh, like really gl- locally focused ways of finding solutions to problems um, and that are these solutions that are kind of outside of party politics, essentially. And and I find that idea really interesting and also really challenging because it it forces you to um, it forces you to let go of your own security blanket, your own ideological security blanket, and think about talking to your neighbor about the specific problems and specific measures around your community that you need to get fixed. And not focusing on the fact that they are uh, conservative voters or liberal voters or whatever, right? I think it did. And it yeah. it strikes me as a as a really useful template for moving forward. In even before COVID nineteen happened, it's it's also just very scary. I find it quite scary because I feel like I I really am loath to let go of that ideological comfort blanket. I think that's right. I- I've found something similar too, you know, the area that I live, there's people around about, there's a mix of 
producing it. And again, I think I think we've talked this before, you know, if I've got some of my neighbours much better over the last uh, couple of months. Um, but, you know, I would find that they, they, they vote very differently from me. But it was all the dependence thing, I'm pretty sure. As in one of the households in our street, is the only one in the entire street. Um, so, yeah, um, but, but actually there is a kind of coming together. There is just at least a kind of sense of solidarity getting each other's messages or shopping and stuff like that and helping each other. So that begins begins it. But mm-hmm. I, I think that ideological thing, I find it really interesting. Um, you know, so when, in, a, in a more um, left-leaning country like uh, Spain or, or Scotland too, um, the whole idea of closing down, you know, lock, the lockdown, um, opposing people think, well, typical socialists, you know, uh, they want to control us all, this is state control, uh, and we need to move beyond this, um, and we need, to, we need to oppose it. Uh, equally, I think the exact opposite of the right-wing governments. I think, yeah, typical right-wing governments are going to close us down, get us off the streets, they don't want anybody to... to uh, I mean, right now, you know, we all should be marching against Cummings, uh, and we can't do that, you know, well, they just love this. And that does make you realise that actually, you know, people who, you know, who are on the, the other side of the fence, the other side of the barricades, are actually thinking the same thing as you. And, and that is confusing. Yeah, it's confusing. I've had a number of conversations with people and think, wow, that's... Um, yeah, the, the, I like your, your thing about the security blanket. And, and you, you... Confusing is right. It's confusing. It's confusing. And then, you know, you layer over the top of that. In the U.S. context, when I was living there, I very much had this feeling that when I was there that I... I wanted to. I did a radio series where I, I traveled to Eastern Washington, and um, which is traditionally very most of it, not all of it, but most of it is traditionally very Republican, traditional area, agricultural. And the reason I did that was because I really wanted to be exploring and exploring the ideas that people had there, and talking to them and trying to understand where they were coming from as a as somebody who lived in Seattle, um, and. That's that's all very well, right? But now, the way things are, I have no desire to talk to anybody who's a Trump supporter. And it's like, th- so at some point, there's a line, right? I guess you have to have a line. You have to have a boundary. You have to say, yeah, I want to support you and help you as a community member. But, you know, where is that line where you say, no, this I can't support? You know, I can't go to Eastern Washington and pretend that we're all the same underneath. We're just trying to, uh, we're all trying to get by when in fact what they're doing is oppressing people who are my friends and neighbours and, you know, my loved ones and people in communities of colour and um, people in communities that are full of immigrants and, you know what I mean? Absolutely. But, but so, the idea of trying to understand the other side, Dominic, you, you, you've got form in this. Uh, we, we both have. Um, <laughs> One of the, I think one of the things I really enjoyed uh, making, you don't know, Dominic and I made uh, a number of video documentaries. One of the things I, I found most fascinating, and I still think about a lot, uh, and people still ask for it, is the, the, the we made a little series, I remember, of two or three um, documentaries uh, on the Orange Order. Uh, yes. Radio Scotland. And, and that was trying to understand people who you don't understand. <laughs> and I found the whole thing fascinating. I don't know if you remember, but but uh, we, we met the Grand Master uh, of the Orange Lodge in Bristol. And I do remember, yeah. And it was fascinating. He was this very pleasant, relaxed, nice guy. We ended up having this amazing conversation. He's a really big jazz fan. 
and so you know, we all love jazz and we're talking about jazz and how much was Elvis Fitzgerald, Sonny Lister, and we've got all these jazz singers to them, two of them in Boston, who am I talking about? Six Um Yeah, it was wonderful. It was a lovely guy, uh, really interesting, and on, on a kind of broad way, and this kind of happening now, the thing you're talking about now, in a broad sense, you could actually touch base with them quite often and say, well, I agree with this principle and that principle, I understand what you're saying about this. Uh, but actually, each time, and no matter what we did, a line was crossed. We think, I can't, I can't go there. I can't, I can't go to where you're going, because in the end of the day, it is absolutely, essentially racist. Um, so yeah, what do, yeah, exactly. I and mean, I think it's something you and I have done lots of other people too, you know, it's, it's to try and understand yeah. that other mentality. And you're right, when it comes to Trump thing in particular, there's no doubt, it does seem to be different. I don't know Brazil well enough, but with that really hard line, right-wing, neo-fascistic thought, uh, I, I'm always very wary of using the word fascist, but it's not fascist, and Trump is not fascist, but it has got, he's using a lot of those kind of tropes, a lot of those techniques. It does seem to me absolutely terrifying, and it's and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's 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 selfish. And I've never told this before. I had I, I a friend. I won't say who. I had a friend in Scotland who decided to go very right wing, and he was probably on my Facebook until they came to awful and taken off. And it wasn't much him, but there were people on his Facebook who were you know, they, they tend to be Americans who were really crazy people and saying unbelievable things quite openly. And the one that really got it for me was some guy, and he was an American somewhere, um, and he, he seemed to me to sum up the whole kind of right-wing mentality in one sentence, and that was, um, um, let me get this right now, um, I have food, fuck you. <laughs> well, that absolutely you know, sums up you know, that kind of mentality about it. It's about the individual, it's about me, I'm okay, and I'll shoot anybody that comes to try and, you know, Steal one of my cans of beans, and I think that's mm. what, I mean, what what really, really cynical, vile leaders like Bolsonaro and Trump. And I really, I'm terrified of how far even the British government are going to go down this line. But you're right. So you, you try endlessly, you can reach out and reach out. But if, if you're going to get one sector that's going to constantly say, you know, what I think of shit, which is exactly what Cummings and Johnson have been doing this week, they don't care. Then yeah, you you can no longer make a compromise. Mm. So where that takes us, I don't know. But the, the two things are still true, aren't they? In the one sense, there is this horrific surge of a really vile right wing. Um, but equally, those kind of ordinary people who may well have voted Tory or, or Republicans or whatever, who actually, you know, under these circumstances, we seem to be finding more in common with. And maybe what we have to do, to some extent, too, from the left, is going to give up slightly in some part, or kind of sacred cows. Um, and, 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 you know, not be completely holding the line all the time. Yeah. Well. <laughs> These are always great conversations. I'll, the only problem with them, Dominic, is the minute we finish, I always think of the twenty things I wish I'd said. It's like, no, no, what are you <laughs> well, um, um, write them down for for conversation number four, whenever that happens. Well, listen, Chris, as always, it's a complete pleasure to chat to you brilliant anytime at all Dominic 